that the scriptures promise that all believers or any believers will have no trials, no persecutions, and sufferings. All Christians, you and I included, all Christians suffer to one degree or another in this life. No Christian is immune to affliction. All Christians suffer. All Christians lose loved ones. All Christians get sick. All Christians die. John Fox opens his famous book titled Book of the Martyrs by saying the following. He says, The history of the church may almost be said to be a history of the trials and sufferings of its members. And while that may be tough to swallow, we all could acknowledge to some level uh, or other that the, the truth of that statement is ripe for exploring. Not everything in your life is sunshine and rainbows, right? And if it is, we need to talk afterwards, because I want to learn from you. Maybe a sudden illness or medical condition or physical trauma has caught you off guard and created undesirable visits to the hospital, followed by what feels like endless treatments and countless medications. Perhaps in a relationship that you perceive to be broken beyond repair, a friendship destroyed, or a family member who has now become an enemy. Maybe you've lost a loved one, someone close to you, or you're currently caring for a loved one, a spouse, a child, a parent whose health is slowly deteriorating and the person you have known and loved is slowly fading away. Maybe you're discouraged because you feel like you can't get ahead. <laughs> Financially, vocationally, educationally, your aspirations and strivings in this life don't seem to be adding up. Instead of fulfilling your dreams, you are only fulfilling your disappointments. Perhaps you're wrestling with doubts, uncertainties, and fears that keep you up at night, writhing with agony and despair. This is not what you and I signed up for, is it? This is, this is not what the Christian life was meant to be. What if, what if all the suffering and sorrow that you and I experience in this life was meant to make us more like Christ? What if God actually caused our suffering because he knew it would be the only viable means to bring life transformation, sanctification, and character change that you and I needed exactly at the time when we needed it? Elizabeth Elliot said that out of the deepest waters and the hottest fires have come the deepest things I know about God. C.S. Lewis said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience. But he shouts to us in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Despair displays our highest hope. It's only when all hope is lost that our greatest hope is most magnified. 
When all hope is lost, our greatest hope is revealed. Despair displays our highest hope. And that's why we're in the Book of Lamentations. The Book of Lamentations deals with the problem of suffering at a national level. It's an obscure book of the Old Testament, slumped together with the major prophets, though there's not usually any major interest in reading it. Lamentations is all poetry all the time, a commentary on the sufferings both during and after the destruction and desolation of Judah, which occurred around 587 B.C. Lamentations is difficult to wade through theologically. It's, it's depressing and emotionally taxing. The book of Lamentations is, is said to be, in many ways, a theodicy. A theodicy is just an attempt to explain the ways of God to humans. An attempt to reflect on the meaning of human suffering. If you've ever read Lamentations before, and we're going to spend some time focusing on a portion of it, there is no plot to Lamentations. It doesn't have a proper beginning, a climax, a conclusion in the traditional sense of how we would approach literature. Lamentations is not linear. It's a collection of five acrostic alphabetical poems. Each line of every chapter begins with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Hebrew alphabet. So something we would miss reading in English today, but what you can expect from Lamentations is a description of the sufferings of God and his people from A to Z. The acrostic form allows the grief to be fully expressed, and yet at the same time it sets limits to it. You suffer from A to Z, but not outside those boundaries. You could say that Lamentations is, is organized disorder. It's alphabetical order of disordered reflection and response to suffering. Lamentations is an orderly account of a disorderly response to sin and suffering. And the structure is appropriate when you consider our response to suffering. If your suffering is like anything that my experience has been like, then your suffering is often disorganized, chaotic, clumsy, and messy. The Book of Limitations gets its name from the first word in verse 1, how. <laughs> As in, how can this be happening? How? Lamentations is a, is a how-to text. <laughs> how to suffer from A to Z. Lamentations does this without explicitly telling us to do anything. Now, if lament is a, a passionate expression of grief or sorrow in the midst of suffering, then the writer, Jeremiah, a prophet, wants to do something more than just vent his feelings. He desires to gain perspective on suffering and to share that perspective with his fellow sufferers. So in a world of overwhelming human suffering, Lamentations gives voice to the deepest agonies of grief with the hope that some comfort may come from crying out to God for mercy. And so today we're going to focus on chapter 3 as the prophet responds with a personal plea to the suffering of his people. A reminder that, that suffering, even if it's not your own suffering, 
suffering is always personal. So turn with me to Lamentations chapter 3. I'm going to read from verse 1 to verse 26. Listen to the prophet's expression of suffering. I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind. And therefore, I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Despair displays our highest hope. I believe our journey through this chapter, this portion of, of chapter 3 in Lamentations, can best be navigated with two points this morning. Suffering produces despair, and suffering promotes hope. Suffering produces despair, and suffering promotes hope. The point one, suffering produces despair. Well, one of the things we have to begin with, of course, is recognizing that, that suffering is real. You need to recognize the reality of suffering. While, while poetic in form, we have no reason to believe that the experiences of the author were not representative of real suffering. And what exactly is real suffering anyway? I feel like 
sometimes we question who's suffering and if it's really suffering and to what degree the suffering can be represented as being, in fact, real. But I think what's most helpful way to define this is going back to Elizabeth Elliot. She defines suffering as, quote, having what you don't want or wanting what you don't have. Having what you don't want or wanting what you don't have. I'm not going to tell you if you're suffering or not. You know. But some religions believe that your sufferings are only illusions. In fact, in Buddhism, reality is impersonal and non-existent. Not only is God seen as an illusion, but all suffering is rejected as an illusion. Uh, the Christian science founder, Mary Baker Eddy, uh, she wrote the book Science and Health, which contains the essential teachings of her movement. The book is full of many assertions, particularly that evil, including sin, sickness, disease, and death, are fundamentally unreal. Now, I'm going to take the assumption here that you and I don't believe that, <laughs> that these views are false. The Bible asserts clearly that, you, that your suffering is real. God is not chaotic or random. Everything has a purpose, even those things we define as tragedies. If you look at Lamentations chapter 3 again, did not read this with you yet, but if you turn to chapter 3, verses 37 and 38, this is what the prophet records for us. Verse 37, he says, Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? That good and bad come. Are you convinced this morning that God was involved in your suffering and that it happened according to his purpose? Are you persuaded that, that God is currently active in your suffering? See, the other problem we commonly deal with in our culture is that we are often surprised by suffering. We downplay or minimize our experience or the experience of others. When we suffer or when others suffer, we respond as if something foreign were happening and we are ill-equipped to confront it. And through medicine and wealth in this age and time, we have avoided a lot of the suffering that the rest of the world still experiences. And so when suffering does come, we like to deal with it as quickly as possible. It can make us uncomfortable, and so we pursue any means necessary to quickly fix the pain and suffering, even if it means simply ignoring that it's actually happening. Yet, suffering is very real in this life. So we have to recognize the reality of suffering, but also acknowledge the agony of suffering. Suffering hurts. There, there's no way to sugarcoat the words used to describe the suffering lamented by this author. So please allow me just to, to paraphrase portions of our passage for us today. He sits under the rod of wrath, in darkness without any light. His skin and flesh waste away. His bones are broken. He is enveloped in bitterness. He is walled in. His prayers are shut out. His way is blocked. His path is crooked. A bear 
is lying in wait for him. He is torn to pieces. Arrows are driven into his kidneys. He is a laughingstock. His teeth grind on gravel. He has forgotten what happiness is. And his hope is dead. This is a man living in utter despair. No hope and plenty of pain. But I believe his suffering was, was so agonizing that the prophet couldn't even bear to say the name of the one who brought the suffering into his life. Almost as if the prophet here makes every effort to levy a personal grievance upon an anonymous being, an attempt to minimize God and to bring God down to his level. Because as you notice, as we read, nowhere up until a certain point in this text did the prophet acknowledge this person by name. Here's again just a smattering of how he refers to the one who brought the suffering upon him. He says, his rod of wrath. He has driven. He turns his hand. He has broken. He has walled me in. He shuts. He has blocked. He has bent his bow. He is a bear. He drove his arrows. He filled me with bitterness. The agony was so deep within, not only was it physical pain, but it hurt to even acknowledge the name of the Lord. He just couldn't do it. Suffering in all its varying degrees produces a vast depth of anguish. Your, your tolerance for pain and suffering may rise and fall. But make no mistake that your suffering is not only real, it hurts. So we must recognize the reality of our suffering, acknowledge the agony of our suffering. And I believe we also must weep our way through suffering. See, if we, if we imagine that the author was only engaged in some mere intellectual practice by recording these words, I think we're deceiving ourselves. Deep sadness and sorrow are generally accompanied in suffering and, and I would submit that it's, it's also a biblical and theologically appropriate response to our suffering. Here are some places in, in the rest of the book of Lamentations that, that I think give us that impression, and I'm going to share them with you. In Lamentations chapter 1, verse 2, the prophet says, She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. In chapter 1, verse 16, he says, For these things I weep, my eyes flow with tears. In chapter 2, verse 11, it says, My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground. You ever cry so hard that it makes you sick? Lamentations 3, verses 48 through 51. He says, My eyes flow with rivers of tears because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. My eyes will flow without ceasing, without respite, until the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. My eyes cause me grief. So this will not be a clinic on how to cry. Uh, 
nor do we have plans to begin any kind of crying ministry uh, here at Grace Hill. Um, and there won't be any demonstrations, I hope, uh, this morning. But some pretend like, like spiritual maturity means that we don't cry or, or that we don't show emotion. And this appeared even in the great uh, Augustine's life because he felt guilty for feeling grief after losing his mother. And so there's, there's some skew that happened where we, we've attributed this, this false identity of maturity to be anything that lacks or removes sorrow and sadness and crying from our lives. We've also all been com- confronted with the common cultural view that real men don't cry. Right, guys? Real men don't cry. Um, in fact, Chuck Norris's tears cure cancer. It's too bad he never cries. And the only reason that can be a joke is because our cultural idea of, of manly men are definitely not men who cry. Crying is a sign of weakness. No one wants to be known as a crybaby. And so we're tempted to be ashamed and embarrassed to show any emotion, potentially because we have developed false views about sorrow and lament. God, I think, was wise in his construction of the tear duct and how it wonderfully connects with our sorrow. During times of emotional stress, crying can be profoundly therapeutic. And here's why. Crying helps us see. It kills bacteria. It removes toxins. It elevates your mood. It lowers stress. It stimulates the production of endorphins which are your body's natural painkiller and feel-good hormones. Isn't that beautiful? Crying is good for your health. (laughs) On the contrary, though, internalizing emotions by deliberately refraining from shedding tears invites serious emotional and possibly physical consequences. Suppressing tears increases stress levels, contributes to diseases aggravated by stress, such as high blood pressure, heart problems, and peptic ulcers. The author Hans Christian Andersen wrote the following in his classic, The Little Mermaid. A mermaid has no tears, and therefore, she suffers so much more. Not crying can make it worse. (laughs) Now, godly sorrow, I think this is worth mentioning, godly sorrow is much more than just a a simple self-induced waterworks show. You and I must never resort to manufactured weeping to convince ourselves or others that our suffering is deep and that our sorrow is sincere. The the goal is not to behave as professional mourners who are hired for a funeral. There are indeed professional uh, mourners, and this was a historic occupation throughout the Mediterranean world, Asian and Near Eastern cultures. Today, if you think this is long past, today, rent a mourner a real company based in Essex, England, will hire out fake mourners to local funerals for the low cost of $68 for two hours. And on the website is the the following. This is what's on their website. Rent a mourner can supply professional, discreet people to attend funerals and wakes. If you simply need to increase visitor numbers or introduce new faces, then we can help. Friends, faking tears is not the answer. Weeping while suffering is a theologically appropriate response. Expect 
that your real, agonizing, sorrowful lament will often, though not always, be accompanied with tears. The tears that you shed while suffering just may be one of the most biblical things that you do. So the next time that you are weeping in your sorrow, just remember it's biblical. Those of us who have, who have experienced even the slightest moment of suffering in this life can attest to the truth that when God determines tears to be necessary, they will stream down our cheeks whether we want them to or not. So I think it's wise that we recognize the reality of our suffering, that we acknowledge the agony of our suffering, and that we weep our way through suffering. Suffering produces a tremendous amount of despair. Suffering causes the death of our hope. But suffering doesn't just promote our despair. It also promotes our hope. Suffering promotes our hope. In particular, suffering points us to our Savior. See, suffering causes us to marvel at the mercy we receive through Jesus Christ, to be simply fascinated by a sinless man who willingly suffered. Here's one who actually chose to suffer through a horrifying punishment on our behalf. And the lamenting of the prophet's own suffering in Lamentations reminds us of the sufferings of Christ. Our suffering acquaints us with the full character of Christ in his own trial, sufferings, and his death. Consider for a moment that Jesus never sinned, yet he suffered. He grieved, and he was sorrowful. The author of Hebrews says that in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Jesus wept at the grave of his friend Lazarus. Jesus wept for Jerusalem and the sin of his people. Nothing demonstrates and invites lament like the suffering that occurred on the cross. Many of the songs we sang this morning were songs of lament about the suffering that our Savior endured on the cross. With the weight of our sin, Jesus cried from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's precisely because God hears the cry of Jesus, that our cries in our suffering are also heard. Without sorrow in our lives, we won't fully know the one who was acquainted with grief. Lamentations chapter 1, verse 12, as a way of expressing his sorrow and anguish, you can almost hear the words of our Savior. He says, look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow. In Isaiah 53, we weren't there so long ago, and it's very common passage to to read and to be heard read but we hear that jesus was a man of sorrows acquainted with grief surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows and what's important for you and i to remember today though is that your salvation is not dependent on the severity of your suffering in this life nor on the depth of your sorrow your salvation does not require a certain number of tears to be shed because there was a man who shed more than enough tears for you, he even shed his own blood. And there's a man who secured your salvation because he suffered in your place for you. And so whatever suffering God appoints for you or me, let us 
remember this and remind each other of this, that the more bitterness we taste in our tears while suffering, that the more we will savor the sweetness of our Savior. Amen? But suffering doesn't only point us to our Savior. Suffering produces praise for our Savior. First, through our suffering, we are brought to utter despair. And then somehow that suffering promotes the hope we have in our Savior and even produces praise for him. As the prophet's suffering descends to the depths of despair, his lament is abruptly turned to praise. The prophet's struggle to say God's name builds with anticipation throughout the passage, and once he acknowledges the true God, his hope reignites. So look back at chapter 3, where I just read verses 17 through 21. Again, up until this point, he had not spoken God's name. It was all just very impersonal. He did this. 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 He caused this. But something changes in verse 18. I'm going to start at verse 17 and read through verse 21. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say... My endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. That, that last exclamation in verse 18 seems to have brought a change in Jeremiah's melancholy mood which shows the importance of holding on to God in the midst of suffering. Even though he couldn't name God until verse 18, where he declared him as Lord, he continued to keep him in mind. He hadn't forgot him. He hadn't ignored him. But the mere mention of the divine name of Lord had a dramatic effect on the prophet's outlook. Because once he acknowledged that his hope was dead... He also simultaneously referred to him as the Lord. And therefore, in chapter 3, verse 21, therefore, Jeremiah now has hope. He was reminded of the true character of his God. It's often through the deepest suffering that God will teach you the deepest lessons. And it was because Jeremiah suffered so greatly that the prophet was able to appreciate the little mercies of daily life. His suffering had produced character, and among many things he learned from his sufferings was the important truths about the nature of his God. So continuing in verse 22 through 25, this is now after, after Jeremiah acknowledges this one as the Lord, as his Lord, this is what he starts to recognize about the character of this Lord. Verse 22, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. 
It's, it's no coincidence that in verse 22, where he says that his mercies never come to an end, that, that mercy is in the plural. It's not just his mercy, his mercies. And so it's no coincidence they're plural because the, the Lord, as he says, his love is steadfast. His faithfulness is great. He is, in fact, Jeremiah's portion. The Lord is good. The Lord is the one who saves. And what happened here is not the prophet merely listing God's attributes, that he actually praised God for it. So that his theology now became his doxology. Now notice that, that Jeremiah's transition from despair to hope was not influenced by external realities, as if his circumstances started to improve. There is no evidence that anything changed in the life of Jeremiah, that any of his suffering had ended. The only thing we know for certain is that he remembered. He says in verse 17, I have forgotten what happiness is, so I say my endurance has perished, so has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But, in verse 21, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. What was this that he called to mind? The character of his God. He remembered truth about his God. His doxology, his word of praise, was not the result of a good feeling. There is no requirement that you must improve your situation before you can praise God or worship the Lord. And I'll admit that I struggle with this. I think, if I'm honest, I find it far easier to praise or offer thanksgiving when suffering has ceased. I will thank God when it's over. When I'm out of the hospital and finally back home, I will thank him. Do I really want to praise him while I'm hooked up to IVs and away from my family? As soon as this relationship is repaired, I will praise God. But when it's really horrible and messy and it hurts, am I thankful? Am I praising him for the God who I know he is? Can you imagine thanking God for suffering while you're in the very midst of the agony with no clear path to resolution, peace, or healing in sight? The prophet was able to learn from his sufferings because he endured them patiently. His testimony is a reminder of the blessings that come through waiting on God. In verses 25 through 26, the prophet writes, The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Christians who suffer... 
They do more than suffer. They wait. There are times when the only thing a sufferer can do is wait for God, and perhaps the most spiritual thing you can do in the midst of your suffering is wait. And the Lord will come. There is a a musical trio, and uh, they're called Beautiful Eulogy, and they wrote a song called If a number of years ago, and it, it came off the, uh, the end of a very difficult season in, in one of the members' lives. He had a lot of suffering in his life, uh, in particular uh, some health issues. Uh, and during that difficult year and, and going through that, that physical illness, he, he lamented his suffering. And, and it became a, a lament, not only of his suffering that he experienced in the past, but the what if. What if I continue to live a life of suffering? This is just the first few verses of this song. If in one unfortunate moment you took everything that I own, everything you've given from heaven above and everything that I've ever known, If you stripped away my ministry, my influence, my reputation, my health, my happiness, my friends, my pride, and my expectation, if you caused me to suffer, or to suffer for the cause of the cross, if the cost of my allegiance is prison, and all my freedoms are lost, if you take the breath from my lungs and take an end of my life, if you take the most precious part of me and take my kids and my wife, it would crush me, it would break me, It would suffocate and cause heartache. I would taste the bitter dark providence, but you would still preserve my faith. What's concealed in the heart of having is revealed in the losing of things. And I can't even imagine the sting that kind of pain brings. I would never blame you for evil, even if you caused me pain. I came into this world with nothing, and when I leave, it'll be the same. So I will praise your name in the giving and taking away. If I have you, I can lose everything and still consider it gain. Despair displays our highest hope. It's only when all hope is lost that our greatest hope is most magnified. When all your hope is lost, your greatest hope is revealed. Despair displays our highest hope. Church, let's suffer well together. May the despair in our suffering display our highest hope in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, help us to suffer well. Lord, use use the despair in our suffering to point us to our only hope, your son, Jesus. Jesus, your steadfast love never ceases. Your mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Your faithfulness is great. You, Jesus, are our portion. We will hope in you. Jesus, you are good to those who wait for you.
to the souls who seek you. Jesus, it's good that we should wait quietly for your salvation.